Good morning. For those of you that I have not yet had the privilege to meet, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Andrew Napier. I've been a member here at Grace for over 10 years, uh, and I am the husband of Annika Napier, who is one of our Kidsman directors here, although she is currently on maternity leave. We have three kids, Oliver, who's seven, Lucy, who's five, and our new baby, Clara, who's just two months old. I've been working primarily from home for the last year and a half, and our kids have been doing remote schooling. So one thing I've done a lot of recently is parenting. Now this message is not just uh, a message on parenting, and it's not directed at parents, although there is one point at the end that is mostly for the parents. But I will be drawing on my current life experience raising children to try and illustrate what we are or can be like as children of God. I've been thinking a lot over the past two months about what I would preach on, and I kept coming back to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Any of you who have been around church for any length of time are probably reciting them in your head now. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. We refer to these often in our house as a parenting tool, but the truth is, I couldn't have confidently told you what the whole context of the chapter or book was. And so I felt convicted that if I'm going to be teaching this to my kids, I should learn what the Bible actually says on the topic beyond just memorizing the list. In order to practice what I preach, I decided that I would preach what I practice. So when my kids disobey or misbehave, I have a natural tendency to be reactionary and I want to address or correct that negative behavior. And so as a way to counter my default in this area, I try instead to direct them towards positive character development, to nurture and hopefully model behaviors that we want to see, rather than just forbidding the ones we don't. And spoiler alert, that's essentially what this book is about as well. In Galatians, Paul lays out a path to freedom from the law, a law which really only shows us what we do wrong, and guides us towards living by the Spirit, which is the key to doing right. A little background on Galatians. Galatia is a region, not just a city, like uh, some of the other books of the Bible. It's just one church in a city. This is a letter written to a collection of churches within the region of Galatia. Paul planted these churches on his missionary journeys, but now some people have come to the area. They're often referred to as the Judaizers or the religionists. And they were trying to tell the Galatians that while grace might have saved them, uh, it wasn't enough to guide them. They need the law for that. And these people were likely well-meaning, probably Jewish converts to Christianity, but they, as do many Christian groups today, believe that without some law to act as their moral compass, these new Christians would swing too far the other way towards license. And this is a genuine risk, that Christians will go too far in fleeing from legalism and abuse their liberty. Paul addresses that heresy here too, and in other, uh, several other letters, but the main issue at the heart of Galatians is that the religionists were trying to infuse the gospel message that Paul had brought with legalism, primarily the lie that they must be circumcised according to the law of Moses. Paul's core message is this. It's not that Jesus saves us from sin and then the law shows us how to live. Instead, Jesus saves us from sin and Jesus saves us from the law. The book of Galatians is uh, th three main sections. Chapters one and two, Paul is defending his authority as an apostle. In 3 and 4, he restates and clarifies the doctrine of justification through faith alone. And in chapters 5 and 6, which is where we'll be uh, spending time today, Paul explains the ethical and lifestyle implications of this good news. So I will read now Galatians chapter 5. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. 
Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to, fall, uh, to obey the whole law. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You were running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep from obeying the truth? That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I am confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that may be, will have to pay the penalty. Brothers and sisters, if I am still preaching circumcision, then why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. As for those agitators, I wish that they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit and let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. So today I'd like to pull four principles uh, from this text, which I believe can guide us towards right living, right relationships with God and with each other. The first is this, Paul exhorts us to choose true freedom. And that comes from being yoked to Jesus. This is from verse one. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again <clears throat> by a yoke of slavery. You probably have heard of a yoke before, but in case that's an unfamiliar term, it's the wooden device that sort of goes over the shoulder, um, the shoulders of oxen to pull a plow. Uh, it allows them to work together. And if you are yoked together with something or someone, then your ability to accomplish the work set out for you is directly affected by whatever is on the other side of that yoke. If it's another strong ox, then you'll make a great team. But if it's a heavy burden, as Paul here describes uh, slavery to the law, then it will drag you down with it. Uh, for other references to a yoke in Acts 15.10, Peter says, Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? So here again, he's describing the law as a yoke that is unbearable, never actually designed to give us freedom, but only to show us how desperately we need to be set free. Now contrast that with this invitation from Jesus in Matthew 11, 28 to 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, does that invitation sound appealing to anyone? Uh, remember earlier when I said that if you're yoked together with another strong ox that you would make a good team? It's where the plowing analogy sort of falls short in our case because that was assuming that you are also a strong ox. In reality, the Bible makes it pretty clear that we're not. When Jesus says that his yoke is easy, he doesn't mean that he's just got a fancy lightweight yoke or he's not planning to do much plowing. He's telling us that he is the one who will do the heavy lifting. And friends, if you feel wearied by the effort of trying to be good, then you're probably carrying around the burden of the law. So here again, the words of Paul in Galatians 5.1, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This was Paul's word to the Galatians and I believe this is Paul's word, uh, the word of God for us today. So what does it mean for us to live freely? As I already said in the introduction, Paul is certainly not equating freedom with doing whatever we want. Allow me to share something from my parenting experience uh, of what this can look like in the eyes of a child. And I do want to mention here that any of the stories I share today about my children are with their permission and approval of the content. About a week ago at dinner, my daughter Lucy said this, I wish there were no parents telling us what to eat and when to go to bed and making rules. I mean, I wish we still had parents, but that they didn't have any rules and we could do anything we want. Now, she wasn't upset at all. We hadn't been talking about rules or bedtime. This was just off the top of her head reflections of a five-year-old. This is what she thought a good life would look like. It's her idea of freedom. Now, I tried to explain to her using examples of driving that it would be nice if we could get where we wanted to go faster because we didn't have to stop at any of the stoplights or stop signs. Uh, or from playing soccer that, uh, you know, she could probably score more goals if she could just pick up the ball anytime she wanted. And I explained that this might seem nice at first until someone else decided they weren't going to stop at the light either. Or the opponents on the soccer field started using their hands as well. Now, I think she kind of understood, but I trust that you can see from these illustrations that true freedom only exists within appropriate boundaries. And if soccer and driving don't illustrate that for you, then just picture what a five-year-old who's well past their bedtime and after eating only crackers and granola bars all day would look like. I doubt that that is the picture in your head when you imagine a life of freedom. So we talked about being yoked and the options presented were to be yoked to the burden of the law or to Jesus. But many of us, especially in the Western culture, uh, we've bought into a lie that true freedom means no yoke at all. And it seems like a plausible third option until you realize two things. Firstly, an oxen that is bred for plow and raised for plowing, but never hooked up to the yoke will never become what it was truly meant to be. Secondly, and I think a strong case can be made that even if you think you've chosen no yoke, you've actually still chosen to be yoked to the law. As we just discussed, true freedom is only found within these appropriate boundaries. And like my daughter, we might wish that that wasn't so. But this is the same lie from Genesis. The serpent tells Adam and Eve, God doesn't really love you. He's placing these restrictions on you to keep you from experiencing true freedom. We know that this wasn't true. Adam and Eve were truly free in the garden as long as they stayed within the boundaries. But this is the lie that's being whispered to us today. Forget the yoke, just be free. Of course, we quickly discover that when we pursue that freedom, we truthfully only want it for ourselves. And like the kid at the soccer game or the soccer mom who is late driving their kid to the game, 
That desire for freedom doesn't hold up when we realize that everyone else wants it too. That's when we suddenly realize why the law was given in the first place. Now hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it in a minute. The second point I want to draw from this passage is that uh, Paul explains here that when it comes to the law, it's all or nothing. So in verses 2 to 12, Paul is dissuading the Galatians from accepting circumcision. Remember now, he's just explained in the preceding chapters that the, doctor, uh, the, doctor, sorry, the doctrine of justification through faith, it says that we're only saved by the grace of Jesus through faith in him and not by any other means. So here in this chapter, he's telling the Galatians, if you accept this requirement to be circumcised in addition to the gospel of grace, you're just going right back to the law from which you were just set free by that grace. The Galatians had accepted Paul's message, the true gospel, but now the Judaizers were trying to convince them to add a little law to their grace. Paul says, don't nullify the work of grace by thinking you need some law in there too. In fact, he takes it further and says, if you think you can add a little law, you have to take it all. Verse three, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. Now remember a few minutes ago, I told you to hold a thought. This is the lie that we think true freedom is to be without boundaries. But I suggested that this is true only when it applies to us. When we realize that other people want the same freedom we seek, suddenly we go running back to the law. I'm pretty sure that in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis has a good passage uh, where he addresses this, and I might have looked it up to include here if it wasn't for something that I came across two nights ago. I'll give you a little backstory first. Uh, over the past two weeks, I've been removing and replacing most of my front porch, and so there's been this pile of lumber and debris on my front lawn. I mentioned something about needing to take it to the dump before I got in trouble with the city, and my son Oliver asked, why? It's our property. How can the city get us in trouble? I explained to him sort of the balance of rights and responsibilities of being a homeowner. I assured him that we don't need to worry yet. It's obvious that we're currently doing the work and so there'd be some grace for a time. But I also explained that there are bylaws against this sort of thing, even if it's on our own property. That furthermore, we wouldn't be happy if our neighbors left garbage on their lawn for a long time, particularly wood with nails sticking out. So this is the practical example of where we see verse three at work. We want some law, but we have to accept it all. Now fast forward to two nights ago, I was scrolling on Facebook and I saw a post by the city of Guelph that's seeking consultation about parking boats and trailers on driveway roads. Comments were a predictably humorous read, uh, mostly I'd say a balanced collection of as long as it's not on the road and not a safety concern, it should be fine. And then a few strongly worded my property, my choice type comments with a good measure of this is a tax grab outrage thrown in there. And while I'm not trying to get into this debate or tell you what I think the answer is, one comment in particular stood out. The commenter said something like this, I have a 27 foot trailer that I keep in storage, but in the summer I keep it in my driveway and it's my property, it's my choice. This is outrageous government overreach. What a waste of time to be investigating this. In fact, when I'm backing in, uh, when I'm backing my trailer in, sometimes I have a hard time because of all the cars parked on the street. If the city wants to investigate something, why not bylaws around street parking? I don't think that person was an attendee of grace, but if you're watching this video, please know that I mean no disrespect. I love you and I thank you for the sermon material. But no matter which side you fall on this, uh, in this debate, this is a picture of the human condition. We want freedom, we abhor anything that infringes on our freedom, and we decry it as government overreach until we're inconvenienced, and then we want the law to step in and fix it. Paul reminds us that we can't pick and choose the laws but we can choose a better way, which is apart from the law. In verse five, 
He says, for through the spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. To be clear, while this chapter focuses on circumcision, Paul's collective writings clearly show that he is not against circumcision and not even against some law or some orthodoxy as a means of teaching us appropriate boundaries. I want to paraphrase uh, from a podcast by Pastor Paul Carter. He says, uh, Paul's consistent message is clear. Get circumcised or don't. Eat bacon or don't. Just don't be fooled into thinking that your convictions on these matters makes you any more saved. And above all, don't fight about it with other believers. These are preferences, not faith issues. So the law was given to teach us right and wrong, and that law still stands. But the law on its own was never able to save us, and it was certainly never able to make us do right or avoid wrong. Instead, it just showed us uh, how utterly incapable we are of doing it in our own strength. Paul says in Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. The third point I want to, um, to pull out of here is that uh, if we're free, what are we free to? And Paul is going to say that we're free to love one another. That's what our freedom should look like. So having established that it's not the law that sets us free, but that true freedom needs to be constrained by boundaries, Paul now in verses 13 to 15 offers a picture of what living in that freedom looks like in a very tangible way. And as I've said, that is loving one another. For this section, I'm going to be borrowing ideas from a sermon by Pastor Bruxy Cavey because I really like the way he explained it. Uh, it doesn't quite fit in this message for me to quote him directly, otherwise I would, but I just want to acknowledge that in case you think it sounds familiar, that could be why. Uh, verses 13 and 14, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul has been warning against legalism, but now he reminds us not to go too far the other way towards license. Don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh, he says. The flesh here is used to mean not just our physical body, but rather our fallen nature, to the impulse that lives within all of us uh, to be oppositional towards God. It can be hard to sometimes identify that power at work in ourselves, but much easier to see it at work in children. I'm not going to share stories from my own kids for this example, both for their dignity and because I think it's self-evident if you spend any time around young children. They want what they want, even if it's in opposition to what their parents want. And far too often, unfortunately, they want it because it's in opposition to what their parents want. As adults, we get better at hiding and justifying these impulses. Um, but kids aren't always so good at that. And sometimes we might be asking them to do something that they actually like doing but because they're being asked by their parent, suddenly they have a reason why they want to do something else. It's almost comical in its absurdity, but let's not wag the finger at children without realizing that the, that impulse is very much alive and well in us. Later in verse 24, Paul implores the believer to crucify that nature, to put to death the rebellious impulse within us. So we have this picture then of the flesh and the spirit, two warring entities, and in verse 13, Paul says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. And the word that is here rendered indulge could also be used, uh, it could also be opportunity. It comes from a military term which talks about a base of operations. So if an army is invading, anytime they take over enemy territory, the first step is to set up a new base of operations in that territory. And then from there, they can launch further attacks to claim more territory. That's the picture Paul's painting here. Uh, this is the risk of going too far towards license. The law has shown us that our flesh cannot 
in its own strength live rightly. Paul says here, you've been set free from the law, free to live by the Spirit, but don't let that freedom become an opportunity for the flesh to set up a new base camp. Rather, Paul says, use your freedom to serve one another in love. That is the antidote. So Paul here identifies one simple solution to our impulse, which says, I want what I want, and that is to focus on a new mindset. I want what's best for you. Love for others is the solution to the problem of our flesh. In uh, verse 14 says, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's a pretty bold claim by Paul. That can the entire Mosaic law actually be distilled down into one command? And if it sounds familiar, it's because it's from Leviticus, but it's also sort of from Jesus. In Matthew 22, when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answers, uh, in 37 to 40, so Jesus answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, did you notice here that Paul has one glaring omission? Why did he take the liberty to drop the first commandment that Jesus says, to love God? Well, a quick look through the New Testament will show us that he's not alone. Uh, Peter in 1 Peter 4, 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply. John says in 1 John 3, 14, We know that we have passed from death to life because we love each other. And again in 1 John 4, 20, Whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. James in James 2, 8 says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. So the New Testament writers seem pretty consistently to hold up love for one another as the highest standard, but have they all gone rogue from Jesus' teaching? Fear not, because even Jesus seems to be into this idea. In Matthew 25, Jesus' teaching turns to a farmer dividing sheep from goats as a picture of God dividing people into two groups, those destined for eternal life and those destined for death. So what does he say is required to be in the group of the sheep? Love for others is the only thing. Now, as a side note, this must be understood within the wholeness of Jesus' teaching. Scripture is clear that salvation comes by grace through faith alone. We don't get saved by loving our neighbor. But likewise, those verses about salvation must be understood alongside this teaching, that the life of someone who is saved by grace should demonstrate love for others. In any case, Jesus says that the righteous people, the sheep, they didn't even realize when they had been loving God. But God says, you did it when you loved other people. Likewise, the goats, they complain, but God, when did we fail to love you? And God says, when you failed to love others. And finally, in John 13, 34 to 35, at the Last Supper, Jesus says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So what's changed? Well, firstly, it's the audience. In Matthew 22, Jesus is speaking to non-believers. But in all these other passages, the instruction is to believers. It assumes that love for God is already present, but it emphasizes that love for God is demonstrated through love for others. And there is, I believe, a good reason for this. If you tell religious people to love God first and foremost, then sometimes they get stuck there. And we all have some tendency towards being religious people when we're trying to live rightly in our own strength. In the name of loving God, Christians launched the Crusades and burned witches. In the name of loving God, Christians march around with signs declaring that God hates people. 
In the name of loving God, atrocities and acts of terrorism have been carried out across the world. But the New Testament message is clear. If you love God, you show it by loving one another. The fourth point I want to pull out of this passage, uh, this now comes from the, the most well-known part of this passage, of course, and where we all began, uh, where this all began is the fruit of the Spirit. So having now made his argument that we are free from the law, we should stay free from it, and that in that freedom we must love one another, Paul ends with a very practical contrast of two lifestyles, those guided by the flesh and those guided by the Spirit. The danger here, and it's a trap that I often fall into as a parent, is that we read this passage as a contrasting sin list and good behaviors list. Sometimes I speak to my children about the fruit of the Spirit in an effort to encourage them towards better choices, but this was never Paul's intention, and it misses the point. He's not saying, these are the ways you shouldn't live and these are the ways you should live. His message as a whole is this, the way you should live is by accepting grace through faith. Stop trying to be good on your own effort and submit to the Spirit and then the Spirit will produce this character in you. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying it's a bad idea to help our kids learn the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Absolutely not. I still think it's one of the most helpful scriptures to memorize, to guide our parenting, to teach our kids, and of course, in our own lives. But what we learn in this chapter is that we can't just stop at making it a list. If that's all it is, we're just recreating the law and giving ourselves a new metric by which to see that we still don't measure up. Or put it another way, if you're going to teach about the fruit, don't neglect to teach about the vine, for the vine is the source. The Bible says that we are the branches, but branches don't bear fruit by their own effort. How do you know if you're connected to the true vine from John 15? You'll know by the fruit that you produce. I'd like to offer another example from parenting, and this might be a bit of a stretch, but I think you'll see my point. Last winter, we built a ramp in our backyard and piled snow on it for the kids to toboggan down. After a good snowfall, it was finally ready to be used and the kids were sliding down, but then they were racing back to be the first person back to the, uh, to the bottom of the ramp and they're fighting over whose turn it was. They couldn't agree on whether what mattered more was being first back at the ramp or who had just had the last turn. And there was lots of arguing, not much tobogganing. And I was tempted to intervene and say, just take turns but I felt like I just needed to sit back for a minute and I had a bit of a moment of parenting wisdom, I'd like to think. So they came in for lunch and while they were sitting eating lunch, I did a little skit for them. I used a piece of wood to represent the ramp. I had two markers to represent them, this little stopwatch. I gave them a piece of paper and a marker and I told them to count how many times in one minute each marker went down the slide. And then I showed them what it looks like when the markers were fighting over my turn, my turn, my turn, and then the second time, the markers were saying, your turn, your turn. And obviously the point of the illustration was that in the second instance, they got to go down a lot more times. The kids were making tally marks and they of course noticed, you know, there's a lot more toboggan slides in the second time. So they went back outside to play after lunch. And now instead of racing back to be the first to slide, they would race back so that they could be the first to say your turn. And they were having so much fun. They were laughing and they got so many more toboggan rides in. Now, I hope you see the connection to the text there. Before lunch, their play was marked by discord, selfish ambition, dissension. After lunch, their play was marked by joy, peace, and kindness. As I said, I know it's a stretch, but because the change that occurred over lunch was not the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but rather a puppet show by their dad. But I hope it helps to illustrate this point. 
A life guided by love for others looks very different from a life guided by our own desires. In both cases, the kids were sledding down a hill. But when the kids were appealing to the law, or my turn, they had less fun. When they appealed to love, your turn, they had more fun. Compare this idea with Paul's words in verse 23. There is no law against such things, he says. This is just after the list of the fruit of the Spirit. He says there's no law against such things. This has a double meaning. Uh, What he's saying here is that you don't need to appeal to the law if you're demonstrating these fruits. And on the flip side, he's also saying there's no law that could create these characteristics in us. So what? How does everything we've learned from this text make a difference in our lives? Well, uh, at Grace, we're in a bit of a period of change. We're reevaluating the way forward. And this is true in our own lives too. This pandemic has affected us all in different ways. But I think it's fair to say that in some sense, at least, we've all been forced to reevaluate aspects of our lives. In these moments, we often turn back to the basics, and this is a very healthy thing. I think this passage represents some of the most basic basics for Christ followers. The fruit of the Spirit is Sunday school, basic level material. Now, I'd like one more time to summarize the four points from this passage. Firstly, Paul exhorts us to choose true freedom, which is only found when we are joined or yoked together with Jesus. Secondly, don't cling to the law, because with the law, it's all or nothing. Thirdly, once you're free, don't use that freedom to do whatever you want, but use your freedom to love one another. And finally, submit your life to the Holy Spirit so that the fruit you bear will be the fruit of the Spirit. And I encourage you to do this in your personal life too. Take some time to get back to those basics. I think we should look at our lives and prayerfully ask the Spirit to help examine with surgical precision to see if our life looks like a life ruled by the flesh or a life ruled by the Spirit. And if you're already a Christian, it's likely not an all or nothing situation. What I mean is this. I doubt that many of us will look at those uh, passages in Galatians and say, yep, I'm totally living by the flesh. Or praise God, I am fully living by the Spirit. Rather, we often need the Spirit to prune away the dead branches that are hiding way up in the tree and to show us which fruit is maybe not developing as fast as others. In my own life and specifically in my parenting, I know that it's patience and self-control. I need the help of the Spirit to grow these fruits because I regularly see evidence in my life that I'm not bearing it. But I can't grow this fruit on my own effort as I have shown myself time and again. And so I pray that God will continue to grow that fruit in me and that he would help me to stay connected to the vine. As I said, I do have one point related to parenting, but you can't blame me. I am married to the director of kids ministry after all. When our son Oliver was three and a half years old, we had dinner with some close friends. Uh, They've offered us a lot of great parenting wisdom over the years. And on this evening, the conversation after dinner turned to the topic of teaching our children the gospel and about our need to teach them not just Bible stories or about God, but also provide them with the language to understand that they can make a choice to follow Jesus and the opportunity to make that choice when they're ready. Or put another way, I think it can be easy as parents, especially parents of young kids, to assume that our children are too young to understand the implications of the gospel invitation. So we teach them about the Bible and we raise them in a Christian home, but sometimes we neglect or delay equipping them with the tools to make the choice. Anyway, the next day I'm in the kitchen making breakfast and Annika and Oliver were in the dining room and I could hear her talking to Oliver about this concept, teaching him that one day he could make the decision to follow Jesus in his own life. She said that if he had any questions, 
or if he ever felt like he wanted to make Jesus the king of his life to let mommy or daddy know, and we could pray with him. And without pause, Oliver said to Annika, right now. That was right now. I don't know if the mic picked that up. Oliver whispered to her, right now. I was in the middle of cooking pancakes, so Oliver suggested, it would be good to wait until dad could join us. But Oliver looked intently at her and said, no, right now. I stopped cooking and I joined them at the table and Oliver made a decision there to accept Jesus uh, that morning. Now, I remember as a child and teenager that I accepted Jesus probably half a dozen times each time as I gained more understanding and in fear that it hadn't worked properly the last time. And I'm sure that Oliver's faith journey might follow a similar path, but I'm equally sure that in that moment, the Holy Spirit was at work in him and with all the understanding that a three and a half year old could muster, he truly grasped the gospel and he was awakened to new life in the spirit. If this passage that we've studied today is true, then Oliver is now grafted into the true vine. He is by no means a perfect child, but I can absolutely say that I see evidence of the fruit of the spirit growing in his life. And while I think Anna and I are pretty good parents, and I do think that good parenting will help produce good kids, the implication of this passage that we studied today is that trying to produce this fruit on our own will drag us down like a yoke of slavery. Parents, why subject yourself to that burden? Of course, we still have to parent, but our workload is so much lighter because the character of our children can be shaped primarily by the work of the Holy Spirit inside them and not reliant solely on our success as parents. I offer this word of advice to you uh, to the parents out there, teach your children about God, but don't neglect to also give them the language and the opportunity to make a decision to follow Jesus. But this message is, of course, also for grandparents, aunts, uncles, anyone who interacts with children. Or this message might be for you as well. Whether you haven't yet submitted your life to the Spirit, or even if you have, but you realize that you've been trying to bear the fruit, uh, to bear fruit in your own effort, hear again the words of Jesus. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, pray quickly to close us off. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for showing us here how to live a life of true freedom. And I pray that you, by your spirit, would keep working in us to teach us how to uh, walk by the spirit, to walk in that life of freedom. I pray for families, for children, for all of us here, that we would live by the Spirit, that we would remain in the vine, and that we as a church and as a community would bear much fruit, but only by your strength and only by your work in our lives. Amen.